Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. Believe it or not, it is the last episode for the year. I'm Dr. Shane, and a big thank you to all the various shows that have been on this morning. The new Summer Fields, you're going to get one in our slot next week, which hopefully will be very interesting for you. We're going to take a four-week break, but we will be back, of course, uh, not long after after the Christmas period. Uh, on the line now, though, I have uh, pretty much the majority of my amazing team, because uh, we're going to be talking about all the highlights of science from the entire year and believe it or not there's been a lot going on despite all the lockdowns and problems we've had there's heaps of good stuff happening but uh on the line i've got dr jen good morning jen Jen's there. I think. As she takes herself off mute, ah, just there we to go. do round 2020 really well. Good morning, Dr. Shane. <laughs> I'll get, to get them to all come off mute because I'm just going to say hello to everyone. Dr. Lyndon, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Great to see you. Uh, good morning, Dr. Laura. Good morning, Dr. Shane. All right, I'm going to get them all to do this in one go. Dr. Ray, Chris KP, Stacey, Dr. Crystal, and the new oral online. Good morning, you five. Good morning, Hi. Dr. There we go. Good morning. And we've got Liv Happy on the Science line. Day. Liv does our Twitter feed. Good morning, Liv. Morning, everyone. I've been trying to get Liv on the uh, Zoom calls all, all year, folks, and she's finally succumbed <laughs> to the pressure. Uh, I'm not sure why. It's a bit weird because I didn't pressure her this week at all. But we're going to talk through some of the highlights of the year, and all the team members have their own personal favourites. I know Dr. Lyndon is just eager to get out of the box. She can't wait to talk about her stuff. So we're going to start with you, Lyndon. What has really excited you this year in science? Dr. Shane... Stories of research that really makes me excited about science are stories that make me think, oh, geez, that, why haven't we thought about that before? Or, you know, things that make me look at the world in a slightly different way. And the study that ticked both of those boxes this year for me was a paper that was published back in May by some geographers at the University of Melbourne led by Michael Sean Fletcher. And these guys were looking at the history of a little piece of land in northwestern Tasmania. So they took some tree rings, they looked at about the ages of about 70 different trees, and they also did a sediment core right near a little creek bed to have a look at the pollen changes over time and the frequency of fire. And what they found was in this patch of northwestern Tassie, before about 200 years ago, there were a lot more fires, a lot more frequent fires. And even though the trees that they sampled could live to up to 500 years, none of the trees were older than about 200 years as well. And this evidence, this scientific evidence, matches really nicely with some explorer journals of the time, some white explorer journals that were looking at this part of the world and saying, wow, look at this. This is a beautiful open eucalyptus savanna with a few big eucalyptus trees and uh, lots of open grassland with kangaroos grazing and only a small bit of rainforest quite close to the creek. Now this part of Tassie is um, timber plantations and a larger sprawling rainforest. So the argument that these researchers are making is that before European invasion, before European invasion, this area was actually really closely and carefully um, maintained, managed and cultivated by the Indigenous custodians of the land. 
because if there was no people there at all, then rainforests would have taken over uh, because of the rainfall and the climate of the, of the area. And look, this research isn't the first to, to have a look at histories like this, but for me, it really, you know, when you just have those shifts in your brain and you're like, wait, what? I thought rainforest was always good. I thought that uh, mm. lots and lots of trees was always good mm. and that's what we should be protecting and that's what, that's the should, right? Should is a scary word in all different contexts, but I'd never thought of it in the natural space before. But this paper is sort of saying that what was there for millennia and millennia before white people arrived was not, you know, what is there now, but what is there now seems to be more wild. And I'm sitting here talking to you in Malakuta right, which many of you will remember this time last year was about to face a devastating bushfire. There's black trees all around where I'm staying. I can still smell fire almost a year on. And I just think, wow, imagine like it's, it's hours and hours of bushland that was burnt all around where I'm sitting now. And I just think, imagine what that would have, would that have happened or would it have been as devastating if mm. that land had managed or if it had been... What did it look like more than 200 years ago before yeah. white people arrived? But this paper, I don't know, it really, it's really shifted my brain in a way that I wasn't expecting this year. Yeah, no, it's interesting when those sorts of things happen where you really, it's you know, paradigm shift. I mean, we use that term too often, but a big shift in thinking that um, changes the way we approach things in the future. Thank you, Lyndon. Hope you don't breathe in too many uh, bad fumes from that. I can imagine the smell's still there. It's, uh, it's devastating when you, I remember going through areas like Marysville not long after those fires, and it was just extraordinary what, what you would see and the idea that anything also- could survive. Yeah. It's still beautiful, though. There's a lot of beach air as well. So I encourage anybody to get down to East Gippsland this summer if they yep. can. Sounds good. Now, Dr. Jen, you're up next. Uh, what have you got for us? Well, I've just been quietly sitting here chuckling about the fact that Dr. Lyndon and I have the pleasure of working with one another because I chose a similar, though quite different, paper that has really shifted my thinking along very similar lines. Uh, So you might remember this time last year, I was lucky enough to have just returned from Antarctica. And so, you know, when I get my social media feed of what was happening a year ago, I've been bombarded with all these incredible Antarctica images. And so I want to tell you about a paper that came out in Nature back in April, where a group of researchers studied a 30 metre long core of buried sediments that was taken from the seafloor off West Antarctica. And in this sediment core, they found ancient pollen, they found fossilised roots, they found other chemical evidence of a rainforest that Mm. was growing about 90 million years ago, only a 1,000 kilometres from the South Pole. So this is the mid-Cretaceous, it's really warm down in Antarctica. And the pollen suggested that, you know, this is a swampy freshwater rainforest. So there was no traces of salt in the core, so it was freshwater. And there were conifers and there were ferns and there were flowering shrubs. And so, it, as uh, Lyndon said, it just spun my head around because I'd just come back from this mm. ice wonderland. And, I mean, yes, 90 million years ago, in terms of the scale that Lyndon was just talking about, it's a really long time, but it's not that long in the scheme of the history of the Earth. So they reckon at this time the annual average temperatures down there was about 13 degrees. In summer it might have got up to 25 And so the key thing to know is that right now, you know, our um, level of atmospheric carbon dioxide is about 407, I think. 
back then they reckon it would have been between 1,100 and 1,600 parts per million. And so I guess the moral of this story is it shows us just how powerful carbon dioxide is because with CO2 levels that high in the atmosphere, even though Antarctica had four months of the year in complete darkness, they were still, there was still a temperate rainforest flourishing, which mm. is just completely extraordinary. And one of the uh, researchers was quoted as saying, we have to recognise what a huge gift it is that we have ice on our planet currently and we have to find ways to keep it that way because if carbon dioxide levels you know, could could render Antarctica a rainforest again. It's just extraordinary. So like oh. Lyndon, it just blew my mind, this paper, really hit me. Yeah, What's I think... a cool idea, though. That, so I, I think it's an, an awesome idea that um, that a rainforest or any, any, you know, communities therein could survive with, you know, four months in darkness. That's, yeah. a, that's an extraordinary bit of uh, evolution in its own right. Yeah, completely amazing. So I just thought that study was super cool. And obviously, you know, it's been such a big year in science. We can all name a million things this year. One of the funny things for me, you know, Googling big stories in science in 2020, and I found a whole lot of pieces that were predicting what they thought were going to be big news stories in science <laughs> in 2020. And, gee, they were just a little bit wrong about what was coming. Yeah, how'd that go? I think it's uh, it's funny too when you look at some of them, um, when you look at those lists, because I was looking back at some of the previous year's lists over the last couple of days. And I remember, you know, the the first discovery or the first measurement of a gravitational wave from a black from a seri- two black holes colliding, just a few years ago now, and it was like the news. And now there've been so many. We're like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, another one. Yeah, whatever. No big deal. We've kind of, we've kind of moved on from from black hole collisions being, you know, exciting. And it's it's amazing how fast that shifts. But um, Jen, you, I mean, you've been there, so it's such a it's a fascinating scenario. But you know, we've talked about you know, one, for me, one of the most fascinating parts of Antarctica is you know Lake Vostok and some of the surrounding you know subsurface lakes that have been there, which. Presumably, in the in the time period you're talking about, were probably just lakes like normal lakes yeah. that got iced over, and you know that incredible diversity of life that um, was in there. And, and wondering now whether any of that still sort of you know in any way surviving with geothermal energy or you know whatever else. But it's a, it's a fascinating space, which hopefully, yeah. hopefully, we'll never get to really see it all. Um, but you know, yeah. it'll it'll stick around. Yeah. Alrighty, uh, well we're doing pretty well, we're going to take a break uh, for some music and we're going to come back with a bucket load more science for you folks. Uh, the team is pretty excited about this, as am I, it is our last show, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo. It is the last show for the year. And uh, although we're very excited to get out of this year into a new year where things might be a, a little bit more fun, there is a bucket load of science we want to tell you about that's happened this year that the team is very excited about. And uh, one of the people I can see, she's pretty excited just by the hat she's wearing, Dr. Crystal, a very Christmassy spirit there with that Christmas hat. What has blown you away this year in science? I do like a little bling. Oh, listen, um, the most exciting story that I heard this year that blew my mind um, was about a little known planet just next door, not called Mars, but called Venus. Yeah. Yep. There was this fantastic observation this year, tantalising observation from some telescopes on Earth, that there could be phosphine gas present around Venus. 
And everyone kind of freaked out because on Earth, the source of phosphine is actually from microorganisms, from bacteria. And everyone's like, where's this phosphine come from? And, um, you know, they ruled out some of the non-biological sources, like it's probably not volcanoes on the surface because Venus doesn't have them, or it's probably not lightning strikes because the volume, the, the amount that we've detected would not be possible from, from lightning. And, and so it kind of came to the point where the researchers were like, oh, well, we've validated this result using two different telescopes we think the signal's real, it's either some microorganisms floating around in the atmosphere of Venus or it's some chemistry completely unknown to science. So either way, it's pretty exciting. Um, and so this result was published back in September. And what happened next is actually part of why I think it's such a great story because that's when the process of science begins. And I think if we learn anything in 2020, it's that science is a process, not a series of facts. And so when they published this result in September, a few people came back and said, oh, let's reanalyze the data this way and let's look at it that way. And they actually went back and revised it and they think, oh, actually maybe the concentration we detected isn't as high as we thought, but it's still definitely phosphine and it's still definitely there. And someone's like, oh, but it could be sulfur dioxide. And they went, no, no, definitely phosphine. And so there's been this really robust process of really going through the data and honing it and refining it and really working out where they stand and so um, this result was published in September at November there was like a presentation at a big conference and you know they come back and said yep we really do think it's phosphine and we're not sure why and it's pretty exciting and as we kind of talked about um uh, later uh, at the time, and we, this result was reported, is that there's a couple of missions that are actually planned to go to Venus in the late 2020s. Um, there's a couple that have been proposed. So there's one that's called the Veritas mission and one that's called the the um, uh, Da Vinci mission. And next year in 2021, they're going to kind of pick which one they're going to go forward with and hopefully be able to get some more insights into this beautiful planet next door that maybe we haven't been paying as much attention to as our other neighbours. I'm with you, Crystal. I mean, don't get me wrong, we will no doubt, Anu and I will be geeking out a little bit later about Mars <laughs> because everything Mars, 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 Mars. But Venus is right there and it's about the same size as Earth. I mean, it's it's very similar to us and it may actually be more a, a, a you know, a bit of a, a gaze into our future if we don't start behaving as well because it's greenhouse gas has gone wild. And yet, you know, the idea that you would have that um, life there, I mean, it's interesting to me, I'm thinking, what would I want more? The determination that there's some life in the atmosphere or the fact that chemistry just has to be rewritten in that area. And you know, both are pretty huge, right? I mean, this is, chemistry is an old field, you know, it's like physics, it's an old field and a lot of stuff is really well known. And this is, this is stuff that we thought we knew pretty well. But uh, I love it. And I love how many people were involved in that project too, because my understanding was it was a bucket load of telescopes from, I can't remember the number but it was a lot um, that did that work, I think, wasn't it? Like quite a, quite a large collaboration. Yeah, it was a huge collaboration um, and it involved a couple of ground telescopes, but they're going to try and get some time on the telescopes again to go back and re um, and reanalyze and, and re really specifically look for this because this is also a bit of a serendipitous thing they found in the data. So now they're booking some time on some of the telescopes to go back and, and really work out what's going on. So I love it because, as you say, it's a story about Venus when we hear a lot about Mars, but um, it's also a really great story about this is how science works. Yeah, and sometimes you get things you're not expecting. Um, and then it takes a while to work out whether they're actually what you thought they were when you first looked at them and a lot of work to do. I mean, so. that's, the great, that's the great quote, isn't it? Like, it's not a eureka moment. It's a moment that's like, hmm, that's mm. weird. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Is that what? <laughs> yeah, no, I think, it's, I think it's great. I think, uh, you know, Venus is one of those planets that, of course, 
we forget, but you know, Mars is in the sky at the moment. You can look up at you know nine nine thirty at night and see this night's you know slightly reddish dot in the sky. It's it's pretty close to us, so it's looking good. But Venus is there a lot, and it's damn bright, and we forget about it. And we think you know because it doesn't have as much color as as Mars and so forth in the sky, we forget about it. But it's a pretty damn interesting planet, and I'd be sending bucket loads of craft there if it was my yeah. Send them both, I say, Crystal. Send them both. Why not? You know, the US is in so much debt. A little bit more. Who cares? Keep going. <laughs> Uh, might as well. Uh, okay, <laughs> on that note, uh, Stacey, let's uh, let's talk. Uh, you're going to talk vaccines and COVID. I mean, yeah, it's you've been you've been eating, breathing, sweating COVID pretty much. Hopefully not um, the whole year, right? Oh well, I have pretty much the whole year. But um, I thought, yeah, we'll just have to um, send out 2020 with one last COVID story. I I think um in terms of uh you know what's inspired me this year and uh, the the great sort of scientific achievements is to see really a lot of the innovation and collaboration that has occurred across the world with scientists trying to unravel you know what the hell is going on with this new coronavirus that that um that has taken the world by storm so i guess the, the year's been really bookended quite nicely with two impressive scientific achievements in COVID space the first one was that we were able to sequence the entire genome as uh, i think wuhan scientists did it as early as second of January and then uploaded that data to to the um, sort of uh, genetic code sharing platform around the world so that that other um, scientists could could use that data um, to inform um, you know further research and then the sort of traveling towards the end of this year now we've seen pretty impressive achievements with regard to um, uh, vaccine development um, but the the work of um, the Wuhan scientists and and others around the world in sequencing COVID um, was pretty impressive because it paved the way for further research into the origins of the virus so importantly we we're able to identify that this was quite a distinct um, albeit related um, uh, coronavirus distinct from the, the SARS that we, we saw in 2002 and from MERS in 2012 and then you're also able to use those um, genetic sequencing to understand its relatedness to animal um, species and, and, and viruses occurring in other animals. So importantly, we were able to use that code to reaffirm that, um, that it was bats that was the likely source of um, a, as a, a natural reservoir um, and that it was indeed natural origins. So expected sort of component part of coronavirus evolution. It wasn't manufactured. So the, these were the types of um, things that you can disentangle from the genetic sequencing. Um, but then the work was also central to sort of understanding clusters and disease transmission and, and, and pathways and that continues to occur and in fact very new evidence emerging from the UK this morning around um, highlighting a new divergent lineage of the virus which carries quite unexpectedly large numbers of genetic changes um, which which now accounts this new lineage is counting for around 60% of the cases in, in London and South England so it's really impressive to see all that collaboration occurring across laboratories so that uh, globally we can monitor transmission dynamics but it's also given um, you know, a critical insight into how our immune system responds um, to, to the virus. And it's certainly turbocharged vaccine development. So the, the second very impressive piece of work is is really how quickly we've, we've managed to um, get some vaccines into trial. We've got now 61 vaccines in clinical trials, 18 that have reached the final stages of testing. Um, and there's, as, as you would know, there's several vaccines already in, in limited use and early use in the US, UK, Canada, Russia, China. And for those of you um, who don't know, I mean, vaccines usually take several years to develop um, and, and, and sometimes decades for, for really new new diseases like, um, like coronavirus. I think Ebola was um, 
fast-tracked itself when that happened and it was five still took five years before there was widespread clinical trials um, so what we're seeing now is really the fastest vaccine development in human history which is really impressive and also um, sort of linking back to um, what we understand from the um, genetic sequencing of COVID, we can now use innovative vaccines like genetic vaccines. So the two currently in emergency use across the states and the UK are mRNA vaccines. So um, unlike conventional vaccines, so they normally use in inactivated fragments of the virus that are administered into the body. These vaccines are essentially delivering the genetic materials, components of the genetic material from coronavirus into our cells um, that encode those spike proteins on the COVID. So that's what's triggering the immune response Response. Laura can probably explain it a bit better than I can, but um, but it's really impressive to see sort of all of that innovation occurring in vaccine development. And um, yeah, I mean, I, mm. I think despite the challenges, I, I'm quite emboldened by these scientific advances and innovations. So hopefully um, this, this vaccine development will be very promising um, to uh, help combat, you know, prevention and control efforts across the world. Yeah, and I think there's been some there's been some absolutely amazing examples of appalling science communication, but also some, some examples of beautiful ones. And I know with um, Fauci from the US, you know, the, the first doctor, whatever you want to call him, um, I heard a great explanation from him as to why we're able to get vaccinated scenes for something like like COVID um, in a reasonable time frame and he was talking about the fact that in 30 odd years we haven't managed that for HIV but our bodies don't produce um, the antibodies to, to essentially address HIV and so the human body is a great um, sort of indicator of whether or not we'll be able to do this and with COVID very early on people were seen as you know getting over it basically clearing the virus from their system and having the antibodies and that in itself says to us hey all we have to do is copy somehow, in some way, what the human body's doing and we'll be successful in generating a vaccine. And I thought there was a, a beautiful piece of science communication indicating why for HIV we haven't managed to do that in decades, whereas in something like coronavirus and, you know, influenza, other things, we've managed to generate vaccines because we know the human body can do it. And so, you know, some really beautiful pieces of um, science communication coming out that I think, you know, well, well articulated by some great people around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the good thing about these mRNA vaccines is that if we do see some sort of antigenic drift or if, if there's, um, you know, changes that are occurring genetically, you can go back in and, and, and fairly, well, I hope fairly swiftly tweak those um, component parts in the mRNA vaccine as well. So it's quicker. We, we don't have to wait like we do every year for seasonal flu to yeah. redevelop this sort of yeah, the other style of vaccines. But, um, very cool yeah, stuff, Stacey. Very cool. very cool stuff. Folks, we're going to take a short break for some station announcements, and we'll be back very uh, soon with some more science from the year. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We've got the whole team online pretty much, and we're talking about the science from the year. Next up in my list of uh, faces on my Zoom call here is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. And what has blown you away this year? Uh, back just... at the year. I, I, I have this balance of, look, this was just an outright amazing discovery, but but I like to look for trends to suggest where science is going forward. Because I, when I start to look at that, I go, oh, wow, that's actually really exciting. And in and, and, and one area that, that really grabbed me this year was uh, in material science and in, in how they make a lot of coatings and films. And so it could be an anti-reflective coating on your glasses. It could be a coating on your window. It could be paint on your walls. And, and the reason why is material science for the last 10 or 20 years has been 
great at making amazing materials, things we never thought we could. Um, although, uh, you know, a lot of times those materials were for discovery. Hey, we made this new material. But what I saw this year was not that people haven't been doing this, but they suddenly became the newsworthy stories in material science. People making materials to solve problems that are actually around making our world more sustainable. And so instead of making an amazing paint that's really resistive and can last a long time, and you might even see commercials for a paint like that, I saw, you know, what's making the news now is quite telling. I saw an amazing article about a paint that um, was a two-layer paint that repelled IR radiation, which is what heats up surfaces, where it could keep um, a painted surface 15 to 16 Celsius degrees Celsius cooler than if you didn't put this paint on and just used a regular paint. And so you think, oh, why does that matter? But if you can keep the outside surfaces of buildings 15 degrees cooler, you're really going to affect energy use in, in, in cooling buildings in the summertime. And then I saw another example of um, instead of trying to make a packaging for food because you were trying to make it pretty, um, it was actually a coating you could spray on vegetables that was edible that would make them last a week and a half. And it was made out of egg whites, uh, uh, an antibacterial um, powder derived from turmeric and cellulose nanocrystals, which are basically derived from trees. And so it was, it was edible and it was this thin coating that you could put on an avocado or a banana and it would last about a week and a half without going off or having bacterial growth and the taste quality was still the same. And, and, I, and, and I just looked at these and went, you know, this is really different. Instead of going, oh, we can make a material we're going, how do we take this huge understanding in material science that has evolved in the last 20 years and, and start to solve problems that, that actually are important for driving society to be more sustainable? And I think this is exciting because I think some of the next problems we'll start to see tackled are how do we replace microplastics in all the products we run into? Um, how do we, you know, we use microcapsules to deliver a huge number of things from drugs to flavoring in, in, your, in, in, in foods. And how do we get rid of having polymeric materials there because they're ending up in the environment and they're not good? So how do we use this brilliant bastion of knowledge to actually go and solve problems that, how do we have a material that can actually remove this problem from an environmental impact or make something more energy efficient? So to me, that's pretty exciting. And I think we're going to see more of these examples next year and the year after yeah look it's amazing stuff and i think especially when you talk about things that are based solely on biological molecules and so forth so we're not we're not putting any you know if, if it ends up in the environment that's where we got it from we haven't modified it too much it's you know the, i love the vegetable story because the second you know you hear that story at the start you think what on earth are they spraying on these vegetables and how do i wash it off but then you realize well hang on actually now this is something it's egg whites well you know i can just eat that that's not a problem i'm thinking of spraying chris kp with it and just seeing whether he lasts longer <laughs> Well, actually, it's already happened. I'm 90. Um, <laughs> yeah. Next week. And you don't look a day over 47, buddy. Um, <laughs> for, those on the, for those listening, uh, Chris is, I don't think, anywhere near that age. But anyway, <laughs> it's, uh, who knows? Uh, yeah, Dr. Ray, thanks, thanks for that. It's, it's really interesting stuff. I think um, the more we look into these new ways of constructing our environment, and I remember Dr. Jen doing a story just last last week, I think it was, Jen, with regards to just how much materials we're producing um, that now outweighs every living thing on the planet. I mean, we really need to be making these things in a way that's um, more sustainable, right, Jen? 
Yeah, I decided it was far too depressing to do that story again this week because <laughs> it was just quite mind-boggling that we've managed to create more stuff on this yep. planet than, yeah, as you say, every living thing, marine, terrestrial ways. And we're, we're not thinking about how to make them sustainable. They It all ends up as waste. It's yeah. terrifying. Yeah, it's dodgy stuff. All right, let's get into something more exciting. Uh, Dr. Laura, you've always got some weird and wonderful story for us. What was the big one for this year? And I'm assuming it's there were no dog head transplants that occurred, probably because of the COVID uh, crisis, or I don't know what happened to that guy. You were very excited about that a couple of years ago. Was Dr. <laughs> Dr. Crystal, you two are hunting down that researcher um but what what jumped out at you this year i thought i would i would stay away from the usual frankenstein transplantations and i was thinking of jen in this story because it was research that was conducted in antarctica which you know when you're at home in an apartment all year you know thinking about researchers studying penguins in the antarctica it sounds pretty cool to me and um, these researchers, it was a Danish group, were investigating the effect of king penguin colonies on greenhouse gas emissions. King penguins look like embryo penguins, a little bit smaller. And they were studying them in the island of South Georgia, which is sort of a real mecca of penguins. There's like 150,000 breeding pairs on there. And what happened to these researchers when they were sort of, you know, spending a lot of time with these penguins is they started to feel quite, quite ill. And one of the um, kind of quotes from the research is they felt completely cuckoo from being around all these penguins. And the reason was because um, penguin poo or guano emits so much um, nitrous oxide. And this is, of course, laughing gas, which is used, um, can be used recre recreationally, but hopefully not largely used as a sedative um, by dentists, for example. Now, what explains the high amount of nitri nitrous oxide in penguin poo? Well, it's their diet. Um, their diet is high in krill, um, which absorb large amounts of nitrogen by phytoplankton. I'm just going to give you two really cool facts. One is this makes their poo pink or red. You can see it um, from space, and satellites have identified different colonies in there. Peng yeah, okay. Sorry, we've got some like lols in the chats that's happening right now. But here's 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 um, a little fact just for you, Shane. Did you oh, yeah. know that there's been a there's been another study published just this year? on the impressive projectile trajectory of penguin poo. They calculated the safe distance if you're standing around a penguin. They can shoot the yeah. up to 4.4 foot. That's over a meter. That's Whoa. incredibly impressive. They were looking at different angles and things, but that's just a little aside for you. Okay, so back to back to the nitrous oxide sorry, produced I was gonna say, by the penguin sorry, poo. Sorry, Laura, I think that aside was for Chris KP. It was really. I just didn't want, yeah, I know. We all know who it was <laughs> yeah, for. Yeah, we all yeah, know who it yeah. was for. <laughs> Anyway, so it's, it's nitrogen in their, in their feces that's converted to nitrous oxide by bacteria in the soil. And this is a greenhouse gas which is 300 times more polluting than carbon dioxide, super long half-life. It can live in the atmosphere for 120 years, for example. And in this study, they found that the areas in South Georgia which had high penguin activity had more had a 120-fold spike in nitrous oxide. And this is actually more than a recently fertilized field. And we know that, you know, the major source of nitrous oxide, um, very bad, is um, from soil agriculture. So that's, our, that's the kind of major source of emissions. So question pending, penguin, pending, are penguins bad for the environment? Yeah, I'm, I'm so funny today. Sorry, <laughs> um, are penguins bad for the environment? No, no, they're not. Penguin species on its own is not bad for the environment it's not gonna you know cause a problem to the environment but what might be a problem is in a changing climate you actually get migration of these penguins and they're becoming more widespread and so they're coming um, more into um 
sort of ice-free polar coastal areas. And when those penguins and their guano come in contact with ter terrestrial soil, that's where you might get um, sort of um, nitrous oxide emission hotspots. So just another impact of um, the changing climate. Well, it's it's amazing stuff, and I you know this whole there's for for those of you at home or uh, in the car or out out and about listening, there are a lot of inappropriate penguin inhaling comments going through the chat there while Dr. Laura was doing that story, and I'm worried that there might be some new black market penguin trade. You know, look, I, I don't have any of that, but I've got a penguin out the back that I can lend you for a couple of days. <laughs> you know that, that that'll get nah. you there. Uh, Chris Chris KP, you have a lot of knowledge of this use of penguins you have a look I, on your face i don't have a lot of knowledge but i'm interested in in the fact that so I, I mean the penguins themselves are very close to the penguin guano fumes and um if if you've ever used uh nitrous for example in a in a dental setting or something it can also change the the sound of your voice it can change the timbre of your voice so i'm wondering if penguin calls would be different if you took them away from their guano yeah. That's another bit of research that someone That's else can do. An amazing takeaway from this. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. More Barry White, less uh, less <laughs> yes. Adele. You think? Yeah. 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 Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Less Adele penguins. Yeah. Oh, gee, that was quick. Uh, on, <laughs> Chris is really on fire with these jokes today, folks. We're going to take a break for some music, uh, just so the team can settle down in the chat because uh, they're starting to lose it a little bit. Uh, we're on their last show for the year. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. We're going through some of the uh, amazing pieces of science from the year. We'll be back in just a few minutes with a few more for you before we sign off. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Uh, yeah, it probably wasn't the best year of most people's lives this year, but we saw some pretty good stuff that we're excited about in the world of science. Chris KP, have you managed to remove your mind from the sort of you know, usual activities of bowels and so forth that you talk about in the show to give us something special? Uh, I think so, but I can, I'm never very confident. Um, I think I've moved to the other end uh, of, of a mammal, uh, in this case, dogs. Uh, although it does, it has implications for other mammals too. But if you if you think of a, uh, a, a think of a dog nose, and if you've got a dog, you've spent a lot of time in their faces. You know what they look like. There, I mean, they they're kind of quite um, they're quite textured the outside of a dog nose, and often quite cold to touch. Which you know, if you hang around with dogs, is not that surprising. It's just that's what they're like. But it is quite unusual when it comes to mammals, as a rule of thumb. Generally speaking, a mammal nose is quite smooth. Um, and whilst, you know, notwithstanding the fact that it's an extreme area of the animal's body, um, it, it's relatively warm as well. So dogs, it turns out, are a bit weird. Now, some researchers thought, you know, thought that was odd. and thought, well, you know, so why is this? And so they did some investigation. And it turns out that, of course, um, the dog nose can be quite cold. But it can, it's also just completely rich with, uh, with nerve endings and not just in the, uh, on the inside, even around the outside, quite close to the front of the nostrils, which made them wonder, well, what are they detecting in this, in this area? Is it just smell or is there more to it? Now, what that meant is they had to then train some dogs. So, yes, they got to hang out with dogs. And based on the hypothesis that these dogs were able to detect heat, they trained them to choose between something that was warmed up slightly at about just like 31 degrees and just ambient room temperature things. And once the dogs were able to, to, you know, to detect this and preferred a warm thing, they then put a few warm, you know, double blind, a few warm things and a few not warm things about a metre and a half away from them. And yeah, 
the dogs were totally able to smell the difference between these, well, smell, sense the difference between these things without relying on anything else apart from the fact that the temperature was different pretty much consistently across the board. So it turns out that your amazing slightly wet and heavily textured dog nose is not only, and this is serious, like hundreds of, 100 million times more sensitive to smell, it can also pick up temperature change as well. I, I just find, uh, you know, the number of things that dogs put their noses into, you know, good and bad. I'm I'm curious as to ah, yes. what sort of evolutionary pressures led to that adaptation that they could, you know, smell. Well, the, the suggestion from the, from the researchers was that... Well, the suggestion was that it could be useful for um, for, for hunting because you can then, you know, mm -hmm. um, see a Recently mammal. Recently dead, it's hot, cold, yeah, and exactly. dead for ages, might poison me. On the other hand, of course, you know, uh, dogs will eat most things. Uh, and and I, the thing that gets me is that which came first? Because they're, they're so good at smelling stuff. You know, if, if there was a point in evolution where they weren't as good at smelling, but they were still able to sense temperature differences, well, that would be an advantage even more so. So I, I don't know is the answer to that question. Mm. But it is, it's an awesome bit of work. Um, because it just, again, I love the fact that someone took so much time. I mean, training a dog takes several weeks you know, more potentially, but they've found some dogs, trained them up to do one very specific thing in order to find out some part of a much, much bigger story uh, and that presumably they got paid to do it. Yeah. Were, were there certain dogs that were pretty good? That, like if it was a dog that was, you know, well-trained to take take down a truffle or two, were they sort of like more sensitive <laughs> to heat? I, I, don't, I don't know. Although you'd think a truffle would be less warm wouldn't you yeah maybe that's how they're seeking them out maybe it's not smell maybe after all yeah i don't know i don't know that's a very interesting idea i have no idea i have no idea if the research has gone as far as uh, as fungus yeah heat seeking dogs the Dogs certainly would heat seeking dogs i love the idea of heat seeking dogs i think it's it's pretty cool <laughs> uh, you, you wonder how many uh sort of similar animals similar size animals you know types of animals actually have um have those sorts of features especially because I, mean, I mean i don't know jen like koalas seem to have a very complex nose don't they i mean is this something that mm. you would expect in in so the other animals as well well, I just think there's so many animals that rely so much on a sense of smell in a way that we can't even mm. imagine. I'm sure mm. there's all sorts of discoveries out there to be made about how smell leads animals through their through their world. Yeah. Well, I, reckon, I reckon that animal sensing also just, whenever I hear a story like that, it, it reminds me just how much we depend upon our own experience to define what we're exploring. Yeah. We, we think about, as you say, smell. our sense of smell is just orders of magnitude less useful. Yeah. Um, and yet we have to think about it in that way. So we're yeah. kind of limited by our own. Yeah, I mean, world. there were some stories that did come out during the year which um, were around how different plants and so forth use scent and so forth to camouflage themselves. From, yeah. And, and I think that's an example of this sort of entire arms war that was going on at some stage mm. in the evolutionary process around smell in particular. So it wasn't just sight. You know, we often think about sight. And as you say, mm. Chris, we're very attuned to that because our, our sight is actually extremely, you know, it's not as good as some animals, but it's extremely powerful and good and has a very wide spectral range. But smells are something we don't think about. And the idea of camouflage and the entire warfare going on with regards to smells is, is pretty intriguing stuff. So, yeah, very it's good. A very good. All right, Anu, we're going to have to geek out for a few minutes on some of the space stuff. Do you want to start us off? Because, I mean, it's been a huge year in, in space so far. It's been massive, Shane. While most of the world kicked up at home under quarantine conditions, uh, space travel continued to um, push its boundaries. And most recently, I have to say the highlight for my year is that SpaceX successfully demonstrated the spacecraft that will eventually one day take us to Mars, which is the which is known as the Starship. 
They recently tested their uh, prototype number eight, so Starship number eight, and the flight itself uh, goes for about four to five minutes, and it's quite an interesting watch. So listeners out there, definitely go check it out. Uh, you, what you'll actually see is that you'll see that it's got several different phases. Um, the, the initial phase would be the initial launch of the very large rocket, the very large spacecraft itself. It's running on these fantastic Raptor engines, which burn methane, which SpaceX and Elon Musk believe that they can create from the atmosphere over on Mars using carbon dioxide and the water that is present underneath the surface. So they're making it quite sustainable and quite um, efficient to actually not only uh, take us to Mars, but also be usable on the Martian surface as well and then come back. So we won't have to have several different phases of different um, ships to like take us there and then have an ascent and descent vehicle like we initially thought we would. Instead, we will simply just have the one uh, spacecraft. And most recently, of course, about two weeks ago, they demonstrated its ability to flip over, so use its uh, retro rockets to flip over onto its side and then bring itself back up using like a gimbal type uh, rotation uh, capability and then come back down and land. Of course, this particular prototype did not end up landing. It did crash upon, um, uh, once it got to its little little area of where it was initially supposed to land, like the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy rockets yeah. initially do. Yeah. <laughs> but that was, I mean, let's let's just stop there for a moment, Anu, because I think this is something that I, I absolutely loved because, first of all, they've managed, SpaceX have managed, I think, to re-land about 70 rockets successfully, which is, you know, I just call it Thunderbirds, you know, amazing stuff. But this particular rocket, and it did, it looked like it overshot where the ground was by maybe a couple of metres, not by a huge amount, but just, you know, that the ground was a little bit closer than the, it, it expected, and so it exploded on impact. But what I loved was the way SpaceX communicated the details of that, because what we typically see is, oh, failure, mission failure. And all they put out was their excitement about the numerous successes in that mission. And one little bit, the end didn't work out the way they thought it would. But, you know, that's how they learn. And it was a fantastic example of communicating science appropriately, as, as we've said earlier in the show, a process that often things don't work out the way you expect, but that you learn from them at each stage. And it's one of the, the most significant pieces of communication I've seen in decades that was just all positive around science being a learning process. Rocketry's hard. We're going to have some hiccups, but better that we have them when no one's on board than, you know, than when it's full of people. So I thought that was a spectacular piece of communication that came out from SpaceX or all over, all over Twitter, everywhere else. It was great. I agree. I think you can see like there's differences between um, public funded space programs and also commercial space programs. Commercial mm. space programs tend to go after more of a fail fast methodology, which is let's just put something out there. Let's get something out there. Let's let's have it complete. And then if it fails, we'll learn from it and then move on and then make uh, newer prototypes and learn from our mistakes. And that really is there are two different types of design processes. And I think that um, we will probably more likely be seeing public funded space programs moving towards that kind of methodology in the future. Yep. No, it's good stuff. Now, what did you think of, uh, of course, the Perseverance lander or, you know, rover had launched in, what was it, July 30 or around that time, I think, um, from Earth heading to Mars. This is another, you know, I just call it, you know, car-sized rover, or as I like to think of it, big enough to roll over opportunity, one of the earlier rovers. And it, it's, you know, it's going to get there on 
I think it's, is it the 18th of Feb? I think it's, it's midway through February. So they've taken advantage, NASA's taken advantage of this close approach between Earth and Mars, good launch time, and it means, you know, really short journey. And this thing is going to do that amazing sequence of, you know, steps to land that we saw with Curiosity, which is almost too complicated to be true, but worked and put another car-sized rover on Mars, which has got a whole lot of new features and things that we didn't have last time. That's right. And it's got the drone on board as well, which is the Ingenuity helicopter. So I'm quite curious and looking forward to February 2021. It couldn't come sooner. Uh, Really looking forward to watching that land and, of course, uh, the data which will come back from that. And, of course, the Perseverance rover will also be collecting samples for a future sample return as well. So many exciting things on the front of both robotic and human space exploration. Yeah, there's some really cool stuff. And I think uh, it's hard to ignore, you know, the other big thing that happened with OSIRIS-REx, the craft that, you know, just went down, scooped a bit of asteroid up, you know, collected it, chucked it in a container and is heading back to, to bring it back to Earth. Similarly with, you know, the Japanese flights and so I mean, there's been so much good stuff going on this year with space. It's it's incredible. And, you know, you never know. Maybe uh, if, if uh, plans go ahead, we'll be putting people, human beings, back on the moon in 2024, which uh, feels like not so far away, actually, given how fast this last year has gone for most of us. So pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Anu. That's really fingers great. Fingers crossed. Yeah, look, fingers <laughs> crossed. I think it's, uh, it's very important. Now, folks, before we say final goodbyes to all this team, I wanted to say a few thank yous to some of the uh, people who have made the show possible this year because it is quite a team that we have involved in Einstein the Go-Go. Um, in particular, the group from Triple R and Elizabeth in particular, who helps me with a lot of the production around the show. It, uh, it is a huge effort. And as you know, uh, some of you would know, we've had a lot of guests this year. And a lot of those have been a result of Elizabeth's great management of that. Um, also, a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy. They finished up last week, but they pretty much finished on time every week. And they always introduce us very kindly, which we appreciate. And a huge thank you to Kent, who has been helping them all year and also providing great feedback to us and and inspiration to us all year round. Kent's a great guy and we love having him here in the studio. Um, To our fabulous team of podcasters who manage to convert our show every week into a podcast that people, I know many people listen to. And of course, in particular to Fiona, who has been running the podcast team for many, many years, and she's finally handed over this year, but we really appreciate all her efforts for so over a decade, I think now. We had over 215 guests this year, which um, even as I say it, makes me feel a little tired uh, because it is a big number. It's pretty much double what we had in previous years, which is a great reflection on the fact that, you know, things like uh, the lockdown that don't stop some of the shows here at Triple R. We keep doing them and we do them with a more diverse group than we've ever done before. Um, I'd say a big thank you to all the media people from the universities who helped us with those guests. There's a lot of people involved in that. A huge thank you to our 20 and 20 groups. This has been one of the big successes over the last year is getting all these PhD students into uh, our virtual studio hopefully next year into the actual studio but the phd students are the absolute delight for me in terms of our broadcasting because they come in with an incredible level of enthusiasm that by the time you're an you're an old professor like laura or ray you know all that enthusiasm being sucked dry by the system out of you i think is that right laura ray is that true yeah, they've they've gone to sleep because they can't. I'm in with... shock. I mean, I'm in shock yeah. <laughs> at that description. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, a huge thank you to everyone out there in the community that supported Triple R and, and our show during the Radiothon. 
It was the best year we've ever had, and it was just so delightful to see so much support coming through in a year that Triple R needed it so much um, because of you know a lot of the lost revenue from some of the other activities that we do as a station in the community. So that was really uh, very important for us, and we really appreciate that. A huge thank you to my team, Dr. Lauren, Dr. Crystal, Chris KP, Dr. Ray, Dr. Jenny, Dr. Ailey, who unfortunately was unavailable today, as was Dr. Ewan. They're off doing other things. Uh, Dr. Laura, Dr. Dr. Linden, Anu, Stacey, and of course, the amazing Liv, who's been doing our Twitter feed. Liv, you're still there. You're hanging in there. I am. Hello. Yes. <laughs> hey, you've, are you still, you're writing and publishing. You're doing amazing things. You started here when you were in high school. <laughs> it's been a, been a few years now. <laughs> it's been a few years. Um, thanks so much, Liv, for doing our Twitter feed most weeks and that. We really appreciate that. I think a lot of people appreciate all the messages and things you put up, and certainly our guests love um, love all the things that you put up about them. So thanks so much for your efforts oh. over the years. Thank Dr. You. Shane, Dr. Shane, can I please interrupt you? I know you're in the middle of all your oh, thank you. Go, Jen. I think it's essential that we thank you, <laughs> Dr. Shane, because your devotion to Triple R and to Einstein and GoGo this year has been second to none. You've interviewed, oh, my goodness, more people that I know how to count. And I think in a year that really it's been bloody difficult for everyone, you have just been extraordinary. So thank you from all of us and from all the listeners to you. Well, you're welcome, Jen. That's why they pay me the big bucks. You know? I know, big, huge big bucks. bucks, huge bucks. I'm still <laughs> waiting for them to come, but there's huge bucks. There's huge bucks involved in being a volunteer, um, but it's all paid for in love. No, I love doing the show. It's, thank you so much, Jen. I really do appreciate that, and I do love doing the show. But above all, a huge thank you to everyone who has listened to the show all year. Um, and I know some of you have been listening for decades, and we really appreciate that. We try and bring as much interesting science to you as possible. This is an educational program. The station has an education license. It is. It is our mission to do this and um, we very much enjoy doing it every week and we want to keep doing it for a very very long time so we're only taking a short break this week uh, this year because we really want to get back into delivering science to you as soon as possible but until then i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere thanks so much for listening to einstein and gogo again this year and we will chat to you in about the third or fourth week of january won't be too far have a safe break Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.